Hey everybody, good morning. It's good to see you. Glad to see so many visitors here today. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to school getting back, I can tell you that. <laughs> this summer has just been up and down and up and down and up and down. This is one of those down days, I guess, but hey, it's, it's good. It's good to be here. It's good to be gathering together to reflect our hearts and our minds on what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing, what the Lord will do. This is a good time for us. You know, today we're finishing up our sermon series on 1 Thessalonians, and this has been a great study. This has been a good time for us to reflect on the function and the purpose of the church. It's been a good time for us to think about what it truly means to be a redemptive community of gospel-centered people, and how we are to live that out. How we are to, I mean, that's part of our mission statement. How do we be a redemptive community of gospel-centered people? And we've looked at, carefully, how the gospel ought to impact every relationship that we have. Relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Relationship with our leaders. Relationships with those who are in sin or who are struggling. Relationships with those who are outside of the church. And relationship, a holy, sanctifying relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel impacts everything. Every aspect of our lives. And we, as a church, are a community living together to see the gospel go on display and have the gospel work in our lives. Throughout 1 Thessalonians, there's an overwhelming theme. A theme of perseverance in faith. To continue to plod through, to continue to grow in faithfulness and and holiness as we await the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here, as we've reached the end, we're we're concluding, we're looking at chapter 5, verses 23 through 28, we're given a call to just that, a call to faithfulness, a call to, to respond, a call to move ahead. But this is not a call like you might Assume. When we, often when we think about calls to faithfulness, we somehow think that it's based upon our own effort. You know, by the skin of our knuckles, by the grit of our teeth, we're just going to pound out faithfulness. But this is completely different. Here he's suggesting that their holiness is not dependent upon themselves, upon their own actions, but upon the Lord. And what the Lord is doing, what the Lord will do. It has very little to do with the believer at all. Faithfulness isn't, this, this call to faithfulness is not a plea to, to strive and to struggle and, and to, in holiness and in faithfulness just by the sheer power of our will or trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It has very little to do with that and everything to do with what God is doing. Uh, I entitled the sermon, Faithfulness Tomorrow Yields Faithfulness Today. And uh, I'm not promoting some sort of procrastination here as if to say, you know, a lukewarm desire to be faithful tomorrow will somehow magically transform your life so that you happen to be faithful today. No, that's not what I mean at all. I'm arguing that, the, that it is the faithful God who saves us. It's the faithful God who redeems us, who delivers us, who sanctifies us, and He will complete His work. So because God is faithful to fulfill His promises, it produces within us faithfulness. The faithfulness of God produces faithfulness in us. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
verses 23 through 28. First Thessalonians 5, 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In verses 23 through 24, Paul makes it abundantly clear that faithfulness of every believer is the direct result of the faithfulness of God. Now, I can tell you right away, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time right here. That our time together is going to be focused on this, the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He keeps His promises. He upholds His covenants. Even when we sin against Him, even when we fail to uphold our end, God is faithful. And you see him doing this throughout Scripture. For example, Exodus 24. God has just delivered the people, the, the people of Israel from the hand of Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. And God delivers them. He, he does it through many miracles and signs and wonders and plagues. And he, he leads them through the Red Sea. And, and he destroys the Egyptian army. And there in Sinai, He establishes His covenant with them. He promises to be their God and they His people. He gives them His law. He promises to lead them as their Lord. And so, He gives this law so that they would know how to live with Him in holiness. But as He was giving the law in Exodus 32, what happened? Does anyone remember? We kind of like to do a little bit of dialogue occasionally. Make sure you guys are staying with us. What happened in Exodus 32? Moses was up on the mountain and... Yeah, they built this golden calf. I mean, here's here's Moses up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. the, The God who has just delivered them miraculously and led them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and he's led them through the Red Sea and he's done all these amazing things, completely destroyed the Egyptian army. He's proven himself over and over again. And even now, as Moses is on the mountain, God's glory is hanging over the mountain in smoke and in cloud and in thunder. And yet they're down on the ground having a little party. They made an image. They worshipped a false god because they were afraid that God or that Moses would not return. It's just amazing to see their faithfulness lasted like all of two seconds. And so Moses comes down with the law. He sees what's happening. He breaks the tablets. They basically get into a family feud. 3,000 of them die right then. Then God sends this plague and basically tells them to get lost. He says, I'm done with you. And Moses pleads with God for mercy. Do you remember his plea at all? He doesn't plea on the basis of their faithfulness. He doesn't even plea on the basis of his faithfulness because he was still loyal to God. But he pleads on the basis of God's faithfulness to his promises. He says to him, he cries out to God saying that what makes them a people, what makes them set apart and distinct is because God is leading them. They can only be set apart if if their holy God goes with them. Only if he is faithful to them. And then in Exodus 34, God comes down 
and he renews his covenant with them. He remakes the tablets of the law that Moses had destroyed. And in verses 5 through 7, it says that the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God proclaimed the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of himself. He declared this about himself. So the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. God declared this about himself. He said, this is who I am. I am a faithful God. I keep my covenant promises. And so he stays his judgment and renews his covenant with his people. And from that point on, as you read the Old and the New Testament, time and time again, when God acts according to his faithfulness, the writers of the Bible draw back to this event. There are so many allusions and echoes and references to this passage that they can't even be counted. There are thousands. Think about in your, in your daily Bible reading, how many times have you read the, the Lord is gracious and merciful? How many times have you read slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful? Time after time after time after time, God proves himself faithful to his covenant. He continues to show mercy and grace to his people, even when they've sinned against him. And so the Bible, uh, the writers of the Bible continue to refer back to this point. And it's, again, the illusions are so many, it's impossible to count. This is God's proclamation that He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is echoed thousands of times throughout Scripture. And the amazing thing is, even in this passage, you see that His faithfulness takes our sin into account. It takes our transgressions, our iniquities into account. They don't catch God by surprise. They don't nullify the faithfulness of God. God said to those who had just rebelled against Him, who have just built an image to worship, instead of worshiping Him, instead of waiting a mere 40 days on the Lord, He says to them, despite this, I will forgive you. I will continue to protect you, to provide for you, to lead you in the desert. I am a God who forgives iniquity and transgression. So when Paul says that God is faithful to sanctify us and keep us blameless, we need to remember that he's he's not just coming up with this stuff. This is not just wishful thinking for Paul. When he's praying these things, it's not just like, I really hope that this happens. I really hope that the God of peace will sanctify you completely and and keep you blameless before him. He's basing it off of the very nature and character of God. This is who God is. God has proven himself over and over and over again to be this faithful God. And so we can have confidence that he will do it. He will complete his work. All of biblical history has proven this to be true. God has shown over and again that his declaration of himself here in Exodus 34 is genuine. And this faithful God, as Paul says here in verse 23, is a God of peace. 
Now, we strap all sorts of meanings or definitions to that. When we think of peace, we think of, of military peace, you know, or political peace or emotional peace. And, and, and though in the end God will bring about world peace, that's not what he's going for. Though, in one sense, in the end of it all, yeah, we will experience some sort of feeling of peace, some peaceful, easy feeling, but that is not God's ultimate goal. This is a relational peace. A peace between those who were divided, who were at odds, who were enemies. God is a God who takes His enemies and makes them His children. When the Bible speaks of the peace of God, it is speaking of salvation, of reconciliation, of a rebel to God. When the Bible speaks of this God of peace, it's speaking of a God who is merciful and gracious, who's done this work in bringing peace through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the God of peace because though He has been wrong, though we have sinned against Him, He is the one who initiates reconciliation. That's why he's called the God of peace. I mean, the gospel is a message of peace, a message of reconciliation, whereby the one and only creator of the universe, this holy and perfect God, reconnects himself, reconciles himself to those who have set themselves up as his enemies. Friends, we've all rejected God. We've all tried to live as if this is our world and we're God. We've all sinned against Him. And we're not sinning against some arbitrary moral code. Like, as if once upon a time, murder wasn't a bad thing. Until God came along and just decided, okay, we're going to make murder a bad thing. Murder is a denial of the character of God because God is a life-giving God. Lying is a bad thing because God is the God of truth. So all of our sins are direct denial of who God is, a direct rejection of His personality, of His character, of His very being. And we've all done it. We have all sinned against God. We have all placed ourselves under His wrath. We have all made ourselves His enemy. But God, in His mercy, being a God of peace, initiates reconciliation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived that perfect life of obedience, a perfect reflection of the character of God, the life that you and I could not live, and He gave that life up as a substitute, sacrificing Himself on a cross to pay the ransom for our sin. He didn't have to do that, but He did it freely. He did it willingly. He did it to reflect the very grace and mercy of God. And He did it to uphold, at the same time, God's justice. God doesn't just absolve us from our sin when we ask for forgiveness. God satisfied His wrath by sacrificing His Son on the cross. And and Jesus' resurrection, it confirmed that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied. That Jesus was indeed the Son of God. The penalty of sin has now been paid so that all those who believe in Jesus, who trust in Him as their Lord and Savior, now receive justification. They've now been reconciled to God. There's now peace between the two of them. They now have the righteousness of God, or the righteousness of Christ, and so now they can be reconciled to Him forever. The gospel, Christ's work of salvation, is a work of peace. Not in terms of a ceasefire or a disarmament where 
Yeah, bullets aren't flying back and forth, but the reality is we're still enemies. We still hate one another. No, God makes us His children. Children who desire to love and obey their Father. This gospel of peace is not just a peaceful, easy feeling, just some some emotional levity. We have to remember that Paul himself, at times, as he was walking in the faith, despaired of life itself. It's not always this peaceful, easy feeling, but we can take comfort in knowing that God is faithful. God will reconcile us to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. The God of the peace is at work, and He will bring it to completion. In absolute confidence in the nature and character of God, Paul then prays that this faithful God of of peace will himself sanctify you, you as in all believers, and keep your whole spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, this is not some sort of tripartite being here. You know, it's not that we have a spirit that's distinct from our soul, which is distinct from our body. He's really trying to get at our whole being. All of who we are. God will sanctify us completely and keep us blameless. It's much the way Jesus said, hey, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. With all that you are, worship God. Love God. And so the same way with with what Paul is saying here. God will sanctify every aspect of you and keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer here is an echo of what he's already prayed in chapter 3, verse 13, in which he said, God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Blameless in holiness. Before himself at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. I'm always struck by this blameless in holiness. Man, I get that I'm a sinner. I get that I need grace. But this call to holiness, wow, you know, We can't just chalk this up as like, well, holiness just means set apart. It just means distinct. It just means devoted. Like, it's over there versus over here. It's blameless in holiness. Blameless. This is perfection. This call to holiness is a real call. When God says, be holy as I am holy, He means it. When Jesus says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, He means it. Hebrews 12, 14 says... Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a real call to holiness. To be holy is to be set apart, to be distinct, but not in a locative sense. As though we need to take all the Christians and put them over here and just kind of build walls around us to protect us from the unbelieving world. No, we're still to be in the world, but we're to be separate, distinct from sin. We're to be blameless. We're to be perfect in that sense. And that's a real call. We're to be wholly devoted to God. But God doesn't call you and then leave you in your sin. I mean, He doesn't clear you from the guilt of your sin, but not change your heart. I mean, if you flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chooses, he calls, and he saves his people so that they would be holy and blameless before him. And if you're the slightest bit self-aware, you know that all the willpower, all the human exertion, all the striving can never produce this. I, on my own, can never be holy. I can never be blameless. I sin. I, I rebel against a holy God. And all my righteous practices, all my religious deeds, my rituals can never make me blameless, can never repay the offense that I've committed against God. No matter how religious I am, I cannot save myself by my own works. And even if, from the point where I was saved, I was able to live a perfect life, I can never atone for all the sin that I've committed before that. There's just no way. And so here I am, called to be holy and blameless. But the reality is, I can't do it on my own. Holiness and blamelessness comes only from one who is already holy and blameless. That's the only way. And Paul realizes this, and that's what leads him to pray this prayer, that the holy and blameless God would do this. And again, he doesn't pray as wishful thinking as he hopes that God will happen to do this. If you're lucky enough, the holy and blameless God will kind of come by and make you holy and blameless if he just so decides to. He prays knowing that the God of peace has begun a work in you. And God, being a faithful God, a God who honors his promises, a God who, who completes his work, will do it. He is faithful to believers. Paul says this knowing that, you know, he, he talks time and time again about the Thessalonians, that they have proven that God has begun a work in them, that, that he can clearly see their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And he said that these aren't trivial matters. This is proof that God is at work, and God who began a work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, he's saying to them, look, I've seen God at work in you. God's grace is evident in your life. So take heart. Take heart. God will complete the work that He has begun. He will not leave you unfinished. He won't abandon you because, this is amazing, His character is bound up in it. His character is bound up in it. I mean, you think about Ezekiel. And what is, when God promises that he will restore the people after exile, what does he always say? So that you will know that I am the Lord. So you will know, the nations will know my name, that I am the Lord. His character is actually bound up in his work. And so God is going to be faithful. He is not going to deny himself. And so Paul says here in verse 24, God is faithful. He will surely do it. So if you're here today and you're, you're doubting or you're struggling to just continue to persevere in your faith, you're wondering if God has abandoned you, 
the answer to this text is absolutely not. God will finish what he's completed. God is faithful to all his promises. Jesus is the author, the preserver, and finisher of your faith. You will be sanctified. You will be kept blameless. This is not because you are faithful, but because God is faithful. This is not because you can do it, but because God will surely do it. Your faithfulness, beginning to end, is the direct result of the faithfulness of God. This gives us hope, it gives us assurance, not in ourselves, but in a God who saves, in a God who sanctifies, in a God who glorifies. So when we doubt our faith, we can have confidence in God. When we fall, we can get back up and stand in the confidence that God is at work and God will not fail. When we struggle, as we look at the desperate state of our world, and when we look around, we can't see what is happening, and we wonder, is God at work? Has God abandoned us? We can take heart because we know that God is faithful to complete His promises. He will do it perfectly and in His own time. And so we trust, and we continue to persevere in faith. The Lord is faithful, and He will surely do it. In confidence in the faithfulness of God, according to verses 25 through 28, produces faithfulness in us. Let's look again at the the verses here. It says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, because this is the close of the letter, we often gloss right over these things. You know, we just kind of like, oh, this is a formality. You know, Paul has to bring his letter to a close, but I'm just kind of moving on to my next Bible reading for the day. And we don't really think about the significance of this, these four verses. We don't think about how they're connected with the rest of it. But if we just gloss over, if we just miss it, you, you, we're, we're losing out on something significant. Maybe you don't gloss over this one because of that holy kiss thing, but aside from that... You know, <laughs> there's, there's great significance here. I mean, Paul is, is basically saying, listen, listen, these things happen because of what has happened before. First, he says, brothers, pray for us. Now, initially, this doesn't sound very profound, right? I mean, when you think that, but when you think that God has just declared that our salvation is the work of God, that our sanctification, that our being kept blameless is the work of God and the work of God alone, you might be surprised that he'd turn here and say this. I mean, after all, if God is surely going to do it, then why do we pray? Why do we bother? I mean, God, we've seen that God has chosen us, that God has saved us, you know, that so, and God is going to sanctify us and, and, and bring us to complete blamelessness, so why pray, right? But as we saw last week, Prayer includes us into the unfolding work of God. God includes our prayer into His unfolding sovereign plan of redemption. Prayer is where we are drawn in to know the will of God and to be conformed to that will. Prayer is our confession of dependence upon God. And if we realize that our life, that our breath, that our being, both physical and spiritual, is the direct work of God in our lives, it would only make sense that we would run to Him in dependence, 
and plead to him and, and, and long for him more and more and more. That, so a recognition that the faithfulness of God to save ought to produce in us a desire to pray. And so like David in, in Psalm 69, 13, we pray, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, and an acceptable time, O God, in, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Hear any illusions there? The faithfulness of God produces in us a perseverance in prayer. Second, it produces in us a desire to persevere in loving one another. Paul says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, if we remember the context, that's really going to distract me, Jim. <laughs> if we remember the context, there is dissension and discord that has arisen in the church. There are at least some who were idle, right? And they became busybodies and they were stirring up strife both within those within and without the church. And so there's there's conflict happening. You know, people are feeling abused. These people are just using people. And there's just, there's discord. There's strife. There's disunity. And Paul has already prayed. He's already encouraged them to increase and abound in love for one another. They are not to let their frustrations or their quarrels break their unity. So this, symbol, this kiss is a symbol of that unity. During this time period, a kiss was a greeting of a strong bond. Like that of a family member, right? Like that of a family member. See, I mean, it would basically happen within family units, extended families, but also those who were very loyal to that family and have a long history, like that were basically like brothers and sisters, basically on the level. So it's only natural that the church picks up on this, this uh, imagery of a family and with that, the symbol of the kiss to exhibit the love that they are to have for one another. And we need to also think about the significance of this for the time, right? During this time period, there were major social stratification. There was major barriers and divisions between people. The rich did not associate with the poor. The Jews had nothing to do with the Gentiles. Masters beat their slaves. Men and women were always separate. This, I mean, these social barriers were huge. But when the gospel came in, all that was broken down. It removed it all. It separated everything. Here, there is no Jew and Gentile. There is no rich or poor. There is no slave or free. There is no man and woman. You are all brothers and sisters in Christ. You are now, now a family. When you accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior... You are united in Christ. You are members of one body. You are together now as one unit. And so the gospel breaks down all social barriers. It takes those from every tongue and tribe and nation and makes one culture. This is the power of the gospel. And because these barriers were so huge at the time, the kiss was something significant. Because you would never see a rich man kiss a poor man. You would never see a master kiss his slave. You would never see a Jew kiss a Gentile. It was unheard of. And so it stood out and it gave, it gave a visible representation of the power of the gospel to break down these divisions. That which was once just completely separate and seemingly irreconcilable has been brought together in Christ. 
It's interesting to note that this passage, these, these four verses, three times, it's brothers is mentioned specifically. Brothers, pray for us. Greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Make sure that the word is read to all the brothers. And so he's calling them to, to be a family. And, and as brothers, we cannot let division separate us. And so Paul says to make sure to greet them all. Do not show any kind of partiality. So this holy kiss, again, is a time-specific expression of the unity that they were to have with one another. It's not prescriptive of what must happen, but instead is a visible representation of the familial love that we have for one another. Okay? It's a representation. And we think about the culture of the time. What would happen if we kind of went in all the time or, you know, kissing one another? You know, somebody comes in from the outside, especially in a liberal area that we live in right now, Champaign-Urbana. What would be the result? You know, people are going to think more than we're a, you know, pro-homosexual church, right? I mean, that's the natural consequence that people are going to deduce. But there's even more to it. You know, like, it's funny that, you know, not many denominations practice this today, but those that do, they kind of, they kind of just do it, right? You kind of tighten up your lip and kind of come in and miss the mark a little bit, kind of hit the chin, you know, you know, you're just performing your religious duty, right? Like, this is something the Bible prescribes, and so I'm just going to do it. But, in the act of doing it that way, with the lips tight and missing the mark, you're actually denying the very purpose for which the church did it. Right? You're denying the very function, that what it's meant to describe, the breaking down of unity. You're supposed to kiss that man as if he's your brother. You're to kiss that man as if he's your kid. Like you're coming home from work and you kiss your kids, or dare I say, even your wife or your beloved grandmother, or your brother that you haven't seen for years, when you gather together, you're to kiss him that way. And that's not a tight-lipped, you know, below-the-mark kind of kiss. That is a kiss as an expression of love. And you're just overwhelmed. I mean, you, <laughs> I haven't seen my kids in two weeks, and I was gone, came back from India, man, I was like slobbering over them. That's the, that's the kind of love that we're to display. But it doesn't have to be in the kiss, you know. And quite honestly, if you know, you, Jim, you try to kiss me afterwards, you know, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, I got it. I mean, good, good. No, it, I mean, it's a symbol of the day that's clearly meant as an expression of the unity and love that they are to have for one another, even in the face of disagreement or dissension. They're to, it's a constant reminder that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are not going to let our differences Divide us. The most important thing is the attitude of the heart, that we are to love one another. And we're to display that in any number of ways, not just by giving a dry little peck on the chin or whatever. The faithfulness of, of God, though, in loving us, produces in us perseverance in loving one another. In verse 27, Paul has them swear to have this letter read to all the brothers. All would benefit from listening to Paul recount how God has been faithful to them. I mean, this is a letter that Paul has written about the Thessalonians of the work that God has done in their lives. And he points to it over and over and over again. He's like, look at what God has done in your life. Look at what God has done in your life. Look at what God has done in your life. There's significance to the word, and, and we're being reminded constantly of the faithfulness of God. 
So we persevere in the Word because there we see that God is always faithful to fulfill His promises. He will complete His work over and over and over again as we see God is being faithful to the Israelites or God is being faithful to the Thessalonians or to the Ephesians or whatever. We're constantly reminded that God has promised to be faithful to all His people. He's promised to be faithful to us. And so God's faithfulness produces within us a faithfulness to persevere in His Word. And finally... The faithfulness of God produces faithfulness in us so that we might persevere in grace. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This ever faithful God of peace who initiated, who sustains, and who will complete your salvation does so by giving you grace to walk in faith. It's all of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, this is the gift of God. Your faith is initialized by grace. Or as Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we are currently standing in the faith that we have received by the grace of God, looking forward, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, that which is promised to us right here, right now, in the present. And in 1 Peter 1, 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So whether you die or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, you will be met by grace, perfected by grace, glorified by grace, to live in the presence of the grace of God forever. The entire Christian life, from beginning to end, is a work of ever-present grace, from a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. So as you look around, as you examine your life, look for evidences of God's grace. He's at work. And if you can look and you can see, yeah, God is clearly working on me, then take heart and know that God will bring it to completion and continue to walk in it. When you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you see that evidences of God's grace in their life, be sure to tell them about it to encourage them to persevere in faith. These are the means that God uses. The faithfulness of God produces faithfulness in us so that we might persevere in our prayer, so that we might persevere in loving one another, so that we might persevere in the Word, and so that we might persevere in grace. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You First, for the reminder of who you are. That you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That you forgive transgression and iniquity and sin. That you have placed your wrath on your Son, Jesus Christ, so that all who repent and believe of their sin might might be reconciled to you. 
God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We know that we have failed. We know that we have sinned against you, that we have denied your name, that we have denied your character, that we have tried to live as if this is our world and we're God, rather than acknowledging that this is your world, that you and you alone are God. God, we thank you for Christ, through whom we receive grace. And God, I pray that that the truth that you will complete what you have begun, that you will be faithful as you have been faithful, as you are faithful now, that you will be faithful to bring it to completion. And so it will produce within us a faithfulness, a perseverance, a desire to follow after you, to grow in prayer, to grow in loving one another, and to grow in your word, to grow through your grace. God, I pray that we do not take this lightly. I pray that it would transform our hearts and minds so we could see what a gift that we have been given, that we respond in joy and praise, giving glory to your name. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.